Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. This is episode two of an interview with Noel Cruz. Hi Noel. Hi Dave. Um, this time we're going to get into your Air Force training. At the end of the last interview we just got to the point where you were looking at joining the Air Force. Um, tell me about getting into the Air Force. Getting into the Air Force. Well as I think I said earlier on um, I had decided that's what I was going to do and I was not going to you know, take no for an answer. So um, I did all the normal things. I made my application. Oh, just as a quickie too. During that, um, my 17th or 16th year when I was studying, doing this engineering course, I wasn't doing so well because I was also studying flying subjects and all sorts of things like that. And there were a couple of subjects that I actually failed. But then as it turned out, they're subjects that I needed to have in order to get into the military. So oh, right. I redid the next year and passed them with flying colours. So it's amazing what a bit of enthusiasm does. Yes. So I had all the qualifications and I put in the applications and I had to go and do the medicals and the psych evaluations, and which are pretty weird and they still are to this day. And they don't stand out my memory too much at all, but we finally got to the interview where the interview board um, quizzed me on all sorts of things. And they were intrigued by the fact that I would have two hours of aerobatics and I explained to them that it took 20 minutes to come and go to the aerobatic area and so <laughs> forth. So I think they must have been impressed with the fact that I was enthusiastic about it at least. But when they got, as I mentioned earlier on, to the, this question about, well, what if you don't get accepted? And I just never conceived of that at all. I was, I think I was generally aghast at the thought that I would not be selected. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, you can always apply again. And I, and I think my answer was, well, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I got uh, I finally got the word because they they said, oh, you know, we, we have Australia wide. There's about 120 applicants for this particular course. I said, oh golly, and we're only taking um, 14 okay. people. Mm, okay, that's good. I'll check it. I I got the word that uh, the initial word I got was that I had just missed out. I was number three on the list, and they're only taking two from Melbourne. Oh man, I was shattered, and I sort of wandered around in the days for a few days until the word and this was I say the word all came by telegram in those days. Yeah. Until that and I was I was wondering who who are these other two guys? Which one's gonna get hit by, who, who can I mug getting hit by a bus? Well as it turns out they then I, I learned later that one of them actually had flat feet. Oh. <laughs> and they hadn't somehow picked up on this. So they sent me another telegram saying, Good news, number two's out. Number three's just moved up. You're now number two <laughs> So I got in. Number one, as it turned out, was a guy who's become a very good friend. His name is Alan Page, and we've been mates ever since. Right. He's my oldest living friend now. And so we fronted up to the recruiting depot on the on the appropriate day and uh, signed allegiance to the Queen and country. And my father and mother said goodbye to me. And my father sighed a big. I can see him sighing big sigh of relief, like, oh, thank God, another one, he's, he's off our heads. <laughs> and that was it. And it was quite a culture shock, really, because you know, I've been living at home as a student and a student pilot and student at school. And um, suddenly we're off to Point Cook, 
to live in barracks and be policed around by the, the drill sergeant and the whole bit there. It was a bit of a culture shock because for the first um, three months, two months at least, eight weeks, we didn't go anywhere near an aeroplane. It was all learning how to be an officer and a gentleman, you know, the knife and fork course, as they call it, and yep. how to salute and all these things. And we had to learn about military things like transfer vouchers and equipment lists and all, which were mind-numbingly boring. And I was scared that I was going to get kicked off the course because I could not get my head around these things at all. It turned out no one else could either. <laughs> they set a very low pass mark for us to get us through. <clears throat> and finally... After that first uh, eight weeks, we then got into another eight weeks of just pure ground school before we got near an aeroplane. And um, all the, the various theories of lift and flight and you name it, and it was really good. And of course, in, in a parallel to this, you, you uh, were marching everywhere. In fact, whoever was in charge of our course decided that no, we weren't to march everywhere, we were to double march everywhere. Okay. okay. Uh, which means you got pretty fit pretty quick. You ran everywhere. Yeah. They had a gymnasium on the far side of the airfield and you had you know, part of your course schedule an hour in the gymnasium every morning. So we ran to the gymnasium and then we did an hour's worth of gymnasium stuff and then ran back again. Yep. By the time you got back, you were totally knackered. And then you had 10 minutes to shower and change and be back on parade to the next step. And this, this is what happened. And anyway, we finally got through all these ground course stuff and I did pretty well at that. I was quite pleased with that because that you know, was where I wanted to go. And then we started into flying. And the deal was that you flew in the morning. There were two courses running concurrently. There was a, a more senior course to us had been a little while than us. And they would fly in the morning and we'd fly in the afternoon or vice versa. It moved around a little bit. Yeah. And they introduced us to our training airplane, which was the CAC Windjeel. Okay. Um, a lot of people are probably not familiar with the Windjeel. Uh, there's a couple flying in this country now as so-called warbirds. But they had a fleet of about 30 of these things. It was quite impressive, the lineup of these things, all big yellow noses, orange day-glow noses on them. But they are a side-by-side two-seat military trainer, big 450 horsepower Pratt & Whitney engine up the front, um, significantly larger and heavier than a chipmunk, and they look really military. Yeah. Unlike the current lot, which are the CT4s, which are a good little aeroplane, but they still look like a civilian aeroplane. In those days, a military aeroplane looked like a military aeroplane, like a mini Harvard, I suppose. Beautiful aeroplane, flies smooth as silk on the controls, lovely in aerobatics. And so we were assigned to these things, and and, uh, they had a a cockpit of a pranged one in one of the classrooms, so you sat in that and practiced all your checklists and all the rest of it, and there was no this referring to a checklist like they do nowadays. You had to memorize it and know it. Yeah. No bits of paper loose in the cockpit, thank you very much, son. Um, you just had to memorise it and know it. So we sat in there going through all these things and check this and check that and flick this on. And it'd be constant speed props. So it was far more complicated than the chipmunk ever was. Yeah. Um, and finally came the day to fly. And I remember we are at Point Cook. Now, Point Cook is on Port Phillip Bay in, in, in Melbourne. And by the time we started, it was getting on towards winter. And Melbourne winters sometimes can be a bit bleak. And this particular morning, it was fogged in. It was so, the fog was so thick you couldn't see you know, the front of your car almost. Wow. And the first day we were supposed to learn how to taxi this thing around the airfield, start it and taxi it and shut it down with your instructor on board. And of course the fog was so thick and it wasn't like looking like clearing. So I said, oh, well look, we're only taxiing anyway. How about we just send out three or four airplanes at a time? It was all over grass field in those days. 
and you know, and just taxiing. Just be careful. Don't run into each other. They figured you'd see, be able to see far enough to not run into the other guy. Well, that wasn't quite true. We had a couple of mid almost mid-taxi collisions. <laughs> I can remember trundling around in this big monster, and then out of the fog would loom another one coming the other way. You both hit the brakes and juggle past them all. And it was like playing dodging cars in the fog. That was the first flight. And then we got into serious flying. And of course, the thing that stuck in my mind straight up was from lesson number one, we did aerobatics. And since I'd already done aerobatics, this was cool. But there are half of the course had not actually done any flying at all. It was very interesting, just as an aside to this, the makeup of our course, we had a total of, I'm trying to think now, there was 14 Air Force guys. There were two Navy guys who attacked onto us, and they did exactly the same course, because back in those days, the Navy actually had airplanes. Yep. They had two aircraft carriers, and they even had A4s, which they finally gave to New Zealand. <laughs> and then on top of that, there were four Army guys who only did the basic course, never went on to the, the jet phase, because they then headed off and flew Army helicopters and things like that. Right. So what does that add up to? That's a total of 16, nearly 20 people. Right? Yep. And uh, so we started with those numbers and, and, and started our training. The, the Army guys were uh, destined to move on, but we lost two of those fairly quickly, but the rest of them hung in there. Now, of that group, only half of the people had ever flown before. There were a couple of guys with more time than me. One guy had a commercial pilot with uh, license with you know, 180, 200 hours or so. Okay. I had by whole 80 hours. Um, and so we... We pilots thought, well, we have a distinct advantage over these guys. And we did for a a little while. But the quality of the training, and I must admit the quality of the selection, I mean, they didn't select people who they knew they couldn't train. Unlike an aero club where you sort of, you know, if the guy's got the money, you do your your best for him. If you didn't shape up, you didn't, A, get through selection, and B, you didn't last long on the course. So all these guys who'd never flown before caught up extremely quickly. And we used to, apart from the, the first solo, by the time we got to our first solo in the Windjill, the two groups were clear. Most of us who'd flown before were off solo in about five hours. Okay. Whereas the guys who had not flown before were off solo in about 10. Right? So yeah. already the gap is quite small. Yes. And then the next big thing was the, the 25 hour test. This was the general handling test before you moved on to navigation and instrument flight sort of stuff. And by the time we're at the 25 hour test, we we're all the same. Wow. The guys who had not flown before were as good. In fact, I think they were getting higher scores than some who had flown before. And that you know, was quite stunning. But you know, th- looking back now on the way they trained us, the approach to training was different in, in so many ways. Very thorough from the point of view of briefing, very good flying instructors who all had experience operationally before they became a flying instructor, unlike, unfortunately, the civilian scenario where junior flying instructors had never been outside the very aero club that they're now instructing in. You know? right. They've got no experience to bring to it, and uh, that not good. So all these guys were from various you know, helicopters or transports or fighters or whatever, but they were all back there after four or five years of operational flying to become flying instructors. The flying instructor course that the military does, of course, is far more thorough. It's a six-month high-intensive course. So all, everything is just so much better, and it, yeah. it showed in the standard of people that they were uh, recruiting, and uh, and that was that was good. And we did lose another couple of guys along the way, but not too bad. But the general uh, thing was good. But also, as I said, the way you could treat your students, or the way they could treat their students, was a little different. Um, 
a couple of times later years when I've been teaching people, I wish I could do to them what I was done to me. Yeah. I mean, in the military, if you transgressed, like drop and give me 20 sort of thing, right? That was easy. I have this one startling memory that's been with me ever since and I've told people about this. It's been very useful. It was a little later in the course. We'd been out doing an early navigation exercise, which I was handling pretty well. In fact, I was feeling pretty chuffed with myself. And it was a wonderful, clear, sunny day. And I came back to Point Cook and it just everything was right with the world. I was feeling so good with myself. And I looked down and there was the windsock because there was no positive control as such. There was a sort of an advisory controller there. And there's the windsock, there's the landing direction. So I joined on the downwind leg in order to see another wind heel go past me in the opposite direction on the downwind leg. And I was so cocky, I went, <laughs> oh boy, is he going to be in the ship when he lands? He's going the wrong way. <laughs> and my instructor sat there and did not say a word. Turn base, turn finals. Fortunately, it was a fairly calmish day anyway. Um, but I did overshoot the touchdown point a little bit, and it still didn't dawn on me. So by the time I'd rolled to a halt, I'm in the far corner of the airfield. It's a big all-over airfield. It's about a mile back to the, to, to the parking area. And my instructor still hasn't said a word. And just as I'm about to turn a taxi back, he says, taking over, takes the controls, puts on the brakes, and he looks at me and says, get out. What do you mean, get out? Get out, cadet crews. So I start, unstrap the harness, and I start to undo the parachute harness. He said, no, take that with you. And of course, we had seat parachutes, which you sat on. So when you stood up, they banged you behind the knees. Right? So you couldn't walk very far with them. Yep. And then he shouts at me in the slipstream as I get out there. He said, now start running and think about which way you just landed. And then it dawned on me. Oh, no, it wasn't the other guy. It was me. I'd landed downwind. So I now start jogging gently across the airfield towards the flight hut with the parachute banging. Jogging gently. The next thing I know, I've got a 450 horsepower Pratt and Whitney up my ass. Roar, roar, roar. He chased me across the airfield. I'm running as hard as I can with his parachute beating the bejesus out of the back of my legs and this propeller was about six feet behind me the whole way. <laughs> so I so say, it's a technique you can't use in civilian training anymore. I finally got to the far side. I just collapsed on the tarmac, gasping for breath. It was, you know, despite the fact that I was as fit as I was ever going to be in my life, I was still completely knackered. Yeah, yeah. Instructor went and shut down the airplane, casually walked over and looked at me lying on the ground still rasping for breath and said words which have stuck with me ever since. He said, the windsock is like a butterfly net. Be a smart butterfly, don't get caught, fly out of the net. And it's engraved on my memory banks for these actions as well. And there've been times years later when I've been flying a caribou in the middle of nowhere, looking at this little grass strip and there's a windsock and I'd say, fly out of the net, you know. And I have said that to a number of my students have gone, yeah, that's a goodie, because I almost got that wrong the other day. Yeah. So it was words of wisdom emphasized with, you know, near-death experience. <laughs> and that was the end of it. There was not another word of it. I had learned my lesson seriously. And other guys had similar uh, occasions like that. Anyway, we went on um, and did all of our training. We uh, had that example when I was in my instrument flying trade, uh, training stage where I said that my old civilian flying instructor wound up in the back seat. Uh, whilst I was doing this instrument flying, we diverged a little bit from that to do a few other things just to really show him up, and that was embarrassing. <laughs> but, um, 
And we used to do things like, uh, well, again, being all over the field. Yeah, and and, be, and there, there were times when there was a dozen aircraft in the circuit yes. and it was all over the field. But using all over the field procedure, which I was used to because Moorabbin uh, Airport was like that too. Yeah. You would land, if it was a left-hand circuit, then you would land as far left as you could and the next guy would land to your right and so on until you know, where you were was now vacant, so they'd move over again. So it was possible to land four or five aircraft almost to beam each other okay. uh, in the circuit. I can remember being in, uh, in the circuit even at... Um, at Moorabbin Airport in the Chipmunk. And there was at least a dozen or 15 aeroplanes, including a P-51 doing circuits, just going around the outside of all of us and picking his lane and landing. Yeah. Nowadays you don't see that because it's all constrained to little narrow strips of bitumen. Yes. And you need an air traffic controller to talk at you all the time and restrict the number to four or five because they're overworked. Yeah. My age is showing again. <laughs> and this was exactly the same at Point Cook, but then we came to night flying. How do you sort of arrange yourself to land on an all-over grass field in the dark? You need some sort of a flare path. But you don't lay one flare path. You have to lay four or five to account for the number of aircraft. So you wind up with these four or five strips of lights uh, as your flare path for night flying, except they're not lights in the modern sense, like electrical battery. Oh, no, they were the old thing called a Toledo flare. They were like a barbecue burner um, lantern. Yep. with a wick kerosene and, and someone put them out there and lit them and they they burnt for four or five hours with this little short fuse and all and uh, they would then finally start to burn out or blow up because after a while the metal canister which the kerosene was in would get hot and build up a bit of gas pressure and it'd be nothing to be just touching down have one of these things blow up under your winter <laughs> and that was fun but towards the end of the day if you can imagine a so four lanes of, of, of landing lights formed a sort of this square grid. So it was easy to actually pick another line through these things, especially when every third one had already blown up. Right. So by the third or fourth sortie that night, which about midnight, half of the lights were already blown up or gone out. There were just these random dots of light all over the airfield. So you could sort of pick your landing path. And quite often there was nothing for one aircraft to be landing one way to have another one cut across his bows because he was landing what he thought was the, the, the flare path, but he picked a different line through it. And uh, so they had a, a thing called a pie cart, which was just a mobile radio control facility, and an instructor would be in that out at the end of the runway, and he had the power to yell at aeroplanes to go around or lift his game or get back in the right circuit pattern, look at your compass, and so he was sort of a, an instructor over the radio to make sure he didn't have these problems. Right, right, yeah. But then we discovered a neat little trick. About one mile from the from the airfield, down the, the Point Cook Road, was a house in which a girl named Anne lived. And Anne was about the age of all of these cadets, so she had a wonderful time. She was never short of a date. You know, smorgasbord. And we used to get Anne to turn the back porch light on when we were night flying. And that was where you turn base, the beam, not, uh, the beam Anne's place, and then you turn finals over the top of Anne's porch light, and that puts you on the right direction for landing. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone had to make sure that Anne was looked after, because if Anne got pissed off with it, she'd turn the porch light off and I'd fly. <laughs> and airplanes would go every which way. And I, I don't know if half of the flying instructors cottoned on to what was going on here. So Anne was a really well-looked-after girl. Years and years later, when I was in Melbourne, I drove down that way just to have a look for old time's sake. And the house is still there. It's a bit of a derelict now. I don't know what happened to Anne. She probably married one of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone hated him because the porch light never came on. Anymore. 
Anyway, we continued through our basic training and uh, got to our graduation, and the whole, that whole thing lasted almost 12 months. So this was the end of my 18th year. All right? And then we were to go to our advanced training course, which was on the Vampire, yeah. and that was in um, our AAF base at Pierce in West Australia. By now we've lost two army guys and I think two Air Force guys off the course who hadn't cut it, been scrubbed was the word. Yeah. So we wound up over and had a, had a Christmas break and then went to West Australia. And the course over there was shorter, it was only about six months long but far more intense. We were introduced to this really hot ship called the de Havilland Vampire. And to this day, I still have misgivings about that aeroplane. <laughs> <laughs> there is no question it was a, a much more powerful aeroplane than, uh, than anything I'd flown before and used to zoom around the sky really quickly. But man, was it uncomfortable. It was a dog's breakfast in the cockpit. It was a, I, I, I'd always wanted to fly the single seat vampire because I believe it was a lot better because it was a bit roomier in the cockpit and nifty little aeroplane. Yeah. And the Brits had done what Brits tend to do with lots of aeroplanes is that they, they take a really good aeroplane, which was designed for one person, and then squeeze two in. Yeah. You know? Even the ejection seats on this aeroplane could not be mounted correctly. They had to be angled forward slightly. So you always sat hunched over. Okay. You, know? you were sitting so close to your instructor that you better make sure you had a decent shower that day or you'd have to marry him. And one of my instructors was a very large guy. His name was Beast, because of his size, Beast. <laughs> and I, w I would sort of be crushed into one corner of the cockpit and he'd take the rest of it. <laughs> and you had five parachute straps, about another five seat belt harnesses. You had bow yangs around your, your, your lower limbs and you had straps going to the bottom of the seat for ejection purposes. And it took you 10 minutes just to do up all the straps. And then the final check was to pass your arm between the seats to make sure that you hadn't strapped yourself in with one of his straps and vice versa. They weren't crossed over. Yeah. Because if you had to eject, that would be interesting. Yeah, definitely. But mind you, you couldn't really eject in a hurry in the Vampire because it had this large metal thing halfway down, going to the middle of the canopy, which had to come off first. Because if it didn't and you ejected, it would take your arm off. Oh, right. It also had a gun sight which used to wind out, not that we used that much in basic training, but it would completely castrate you if you ejected with the gun sight in the, in the out position. It had a worm drive which would fold away to the panel. Yeah. So the, this sort of pre, I'll rephrase that, um, instantaneous ejection was out. It had to be very premeditated as you had to sort of collapse half the aeroplane before you could safely get out of the thing. And then the seat of course was a very old technology one, so never, never came close to even needing to use it fortunately. But the aeroplane went well in terms of um, its, its, its speed and all, so it certainly, as, a, as an advanced trainer, it got you thinking quickly and got you uh, into advanced uh, techniques where we could take the thing to 40,000 feet, so we had to learn all about decompression and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The pressurization system in it was terrible, the, there was no cooling uh, at all, you couldn't even turn the air conditioning such as it was on until after takeoff. And there was a wheel hidden behind the seats, down between the seats. So you had to put your arm down between the seats and wind this wheel on after you got the gear up. And half the time your flying suit sleeve would then get caught on something down there. So you could always tell a vampire pilot because he had ripped sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> you get stuck. So here you are accelerating away with the undercarriage coming up and the flaps coming up and your right arm is stuck down between the seats because you, you're caught on something. So you just rip it out and tear the shreds out of it. So, all the cadets had, had, had ripped flying suits. 
<laughs> the aeroplane um, taught us a lot. It also tended to polarize us a bit because we had, a, as I said earlier on, a range of instructors from different backgrounds. Yes. And if any of them are listening, I don't mean this in any personal way, but then we had a couple of guys who had come from helicopters who weren't really suited to jets, which is why they flew helicopters in the first place. Yeah. And now they were teaching on the jet. And I had one for a short time, and I really didn't like being taught by him because I felt he was holding me back. You know, I was, I was really gung-ho. I wanted to you know, rip into this thing. And the landing technique that I was taught by another guy for this airplane, it didn't satisfy me at all. I, I got to this point where I thought I couldn't land this airplane properly because the technique I was being taught just didn't seem right. Because another thing about good British airplanes, you've either got a tiny bit of flap or you've got all of it. It has two stages. You had 10 degrees or 80 degrees. And the 80 degrees of flap, the big barn door would come down and the airplane would just stop in midair and come down like a Stuka, which then gave you no energy to, to flare if you use the flap too early, etc. So a lot of things like this. And I think a lot of the guys started to feel this too. They were, we were all starting to get our own different style of flying, if you like, and polarise. And I think the 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 chief flying instructor was also trying to decide which sort of flying instructor suited which style of student. It was really getting a more personal thing. Yeah. I probably didn't realise as much then as I, I do in retrospect now, but I went through, and we all had changed flying instructors in those early days three or four times within about the first 20 or so hours, Okay. right? Until we finally sort of settled on the guy that suited us the most. And horror of horrors, I settled with a guy I thought who was an absolute monster. <laughs> it probably happened about halfway through the course, really, another guy. Um, and there was this one guy there, he was a senior flying instructor. Uh, there were all our flying instructors were you know, junior flight lieutenants or flying officers. This guy was very senior. And he got this reputation for being the guy that you flew with if you were going to be scrubbed. Well, of course. Huh? Okay. And his name was Spike, Spike Jones. If he's listening, <laughs> um, because I can remember seeing a couple of my course mates having gone flying with him. One of them came back and he was in tears. The student was in tears because Spike would just rip into you and ride you mercilessly. And everyone didn't, nobody wanted to fly with Spike. Oh, no. And here I was railing against this flying instructor that I had because he was holding me back. And the next thing I know, I'm assigned Spike. And I thought, oh, this is it. They're going to scrub me. This is the scrub right, you know? And uh, I got in this cockpit with Spike and he's into me straight away. And I'm thinking, oh, this is it, it's, it's all over. What have I done wrong? I couldn't, I couldn't conceive of what I'd done wrong. I thought I was flying the airplane pretty well. And uh, we're, I can't remember the exact exercise, but I was just doing the simple climbing turn, 45 degree bank climbing turn on the way to go somewhere, right? But it had to be exactly 45 degrees of bank, it had to be the exactly 240 knots, not a knot more, not a knot less, and you know, make sure the angle bank now, roar, 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 roar. And this was after several hours of this, and I just lost it. I lost it. And I just exploded. And I basically said, using the vernacular, if you can fly this bloody airplane any better than I can, then handing over, you bloody do it, because I'm sick of this. And as soon as I said that, and I've used a few more words than that too, yeah. I thought, that's it. Because I thought I was being scrapped. I thought, this is all over. I might as well say my piece. And there's this deathly silence in the cockpit. And I thought, oh, God. Oh, come on. I wanted I to sort of, that's what I wanted to eject. And I, I, I looked at him over the corner of my eye. Now, we had the bone dome and the visor and the mask with the whole bit on, and I could almost see this grin forming underneath his oxy mask. And he looked at me and said, 
wondering how long it would take you to get to this point. He said, now let's teach you to fly. <laughs> huh? This guy was one of the hottest fighter pilots that they had around, and he taught me how to fly that airplane exactly the way I wanted. He saved me. I don't know what I would have become if he hadn't got me and said, right, I want every maneuver that you do on the stall buffet everywhere and, until you get to the touchdown points. He made me haul this airplane around as hard and as tight as I could, and I loved it. And whilst he rode me, it was now in a more um, teamwork style. Yeah, come on, try this, this'll, be, this'll help you better and all the rest of it. And any chance he could, he could get, he would bounce another vampire and we'd dogfight, and we won every one of them. And halfway through he'd say, handing over your turn. And I had an absolute ball with this guy. He, uh, he made me work twice as hard as anyone else did. You know, he was no cream puff. Yeah. But you know, he, he, he sort of he lifted me up to get me where I wanted to go. I think they finally identified where I wanted to go, and he was the man to do it. A thousand years later, I met him at a fighter pilot reunion, and he walked up to me and said, "Hello, Noel. I'm Spike. You, you remember me?" And I looked at him and said, "Remember you? I still have nightmares about you." Was <laughs> <laughs> that sort of guy? Anyway, it got to the point where. Uh, we finally got to, to the very final stages of, 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 the, of the course. We'd lost a couple more guys at that stage. We were now down to eight Air Force guys and two Navy guys were left. Two Navy guys have been all the way through that. Thanks for hanging there. But we, think we started with 12 Air Force, so we're down to eight. And we were told, you know, you could be scrubbed right up until the last day. Don't think you've made it because you're almost there. You know, we were already sewing our pilot officer stripes on underneath our cadet stripes in, <laughs> in, ready, in readiness for the graduation. But, oh, they're too cocky, son. And we had a, a chief flying instructor. His name was Fox, Springer Fox. And he was a pretty hard guy, too. And he was a, a fighter pilot of summer now. And I did my final night test with him. And because uh, oh, I showed Spike also taught me how to land a vampire properly, like a fighter. Yeah. You, you only drop the, the full flap at the very last stage to slow you down. You do this much higher speed, flatter type approach and then throw on the brakes at the last minute and put the wheels on the first brick every time. And I got pretty good at that. I was pretty chuffed with my little lander's vampire. And of course at night, I mean, it was a little bit hairy because you're only 10 feet off the, off the ground, some distance from the end of the, of the lights <laughs> over, over blackness. And I did my night test with Springer Fox. So I threw at him my best. We did all the upper air work, and that was fine. Came back and shot some circuits, and I did this approach. And he's saying, "You're undershooting, Cruz." I'm saying, "No, I'm not." I was really cocky then. No, I'm not. I'm fine. Cruz, you're undershooting. No, I'm not. <laughs> Touched down the first brick. And there's this pause. He said, "Do that again." So I ran around to exactly the same thing again. He said, "Bugger." He said, "Give me a go." So he did a circuit, and he ball, and and and, and uh, this is how cocky I was getting. I'm saying to him, you're overshooting, sir. You're overshooting, sir. Shut up, Chris. <laughs> and he did. He overshot. We touched down about 300 feet in from the end of the runway. He said, oh, buddy, he passed then. and takes him back in. <laughs> and I, I must, I was a really cocky shit at that stage because Spike had really built me up. Anyway, so we finally graduated, did the wings test and the whole bit. And because uh, none of us knew where we were going at this point, they just they had a, a big dining in night where you all sat around and got boozed or, and they stood up and then announced your postings. Yeah. And uh, I knew I wanted to go to fighters, but quite frankly, I've been so intense on the airplane, I hadn't actually learned too much about the names of the squadrons that I was, oh, I knew the numbers of the squadrons were going to, but I've forgotten that they were all, each squadron is attached to a wing, like number 75 squadron and 76 squadron at Williamtown were attached to 81 wing. I didn't even know that, you know, that's the details. Yeah. So of course they started reading out who's going where, 
Cruise to 81 wind. And I'm thinking, where's that? <laughs> what have I got? I have to ask around the guys, where's 81 wind? Bloody fighters, you dickhead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, find, whoops, I finally got what I wanted and they sent me off to 81 to become a fighter pilot. And that really, I think at that stage I was 18 and, 19 and a half. 19, right. yeah, 19 and a half years of age, I was going to be a, a teenage fighter pilot. Mind you, there were four of the other guys, or three of the other guys did too, it was four of us got fighters. Yep. And one of them was even younger than me by about two days. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we were all just kids. I mean, we were the boy racers that you read about today. Yeah. You read about some of the boy racers and the trouble they get into. And I'm thinking, I know exactly what they're feeling. They just want to go and rip shit out of something with a hot machine. Yeah. Give them an open space and let them do it, or give them an airplane and let them go. They're the, the perfect people to be recruited for that sort of environment. And exactly. we all were. Because we all had the sports cars by then, of course, and the whole, the whole bit. And so we then shuffled off to the RAAF base at Williamtown, which is uh, in Newcastle, just north of Sydney, which was the main fighter base even to this day, where we were then uh, started into our fighter course. The first part of that was to fly vampires again. Okay. You know, um, to learn how to drop bombs and shoot guns and all that sort of stuff from them. Because whilst the vampires that we had in uh, in Pierce had the potential that we'd never done that at all. It wasn't part of the, the, the advanced training, it was just a pure flying thing. Right. I thought, wow, this is the real, this is the time, you know, we actually carried bombs and rockets. You hung eight rockets on the wing of a vampire and oh man, then you realize what a dog of an airplane is. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> they used to have these rockets with big concrete heads on them, which are tremendous drag. And the old vampire didn't like that at all. Gun firing was good. Had these old Hispano 20 millimeter guns, which would sort of go pop, 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 pop. You almost count the bullets coming out, but they're a good trainer. Yeah, they're a good trainer. And of course, here I was, um, and I had the world's greatest landing technique. And the first thing I said was, "Well, forget that. We're going to show you a different way because not only are you going to land the airplane, we want you to simulate flying a saber." You know? Okay. Because the vampire had such really good flaps, you never used the speed brakes in the approach because it was just too much drag. I said, well, now you're going to, because the sabre comes out of the sky a little bit quicker and a bit steeper. So we did this landing technique, which involved full speed brakes and full flaps and coming out of the sky like a brick. And that kind of spoiled my whole, you know, high speed, low level approach to the runway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they retaught me how to land the airplane, which is okay. It was actually a good reason, because the sabre then became much, much easier to fly as a result of that. And we spent, um, oh, two, two months. I think flying uh, these things, but but uh, now I was graduated. I had my wings. I, I was a whole piled officer with this tiny little stripe on my shoulder, and so uh, it wasn't like you were constrained to camp or anything like that. And totally free. So this was a really wonderful time. So whilst I was doing this training during the weekdays, um, there were a whole bunch of people at the base who needed to be taken places of a weekend, and I, I and several other guys put our hands up as the ferry pilot, especially to Melbourne, because I could go and visit my parents. Okay. And almost every weekend, I'm flying a vampire down to Lavender Air Base at Melbourne with some senior officer on board, and go and spend some time with my parents, and then fly it back again. Yeah. And and again, that's when I, I felt that my dad really felt that I'd made it by then. Like, here's, here's my number one son, and he's actually got a, a serious job in the whole bit. Yeah, that, that, that felt really good. My father was really pleased that I'd got this serious job. And here I was in command of my own little jet airplane and the whole bit. All terribly, terribly impressive. Yeah. And, uh, and kept my ego totally inflated. Yeah. 
And uh, after doing all of this weapons work, uh, which involved how to track someone in the air with a gun camera, you know, with a gun sight, and how to fire rockets and bombs and, and all that sort of stuff, it was time then for the, the big time, and that was to move on to the hot ship, the Sabre, which I think really we should talk about on another other thing. Okay, well, we'll, um, we'll come back to that in the next episode. The no. next episode, yeah. Thank you very much. I'll do some homework. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.